0: This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.
1: Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11.
0: You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In the Eastern Christian world, it is common to wish people a hearty many years whenever they are celebrating any meaningful life event, whether that be a birthday or an anniversary or when they become chrismated into the church. This is not said to suggest that there is anything special about having a long earthly life, as if that is the criterion for God's blessings. If that were the case, we'd have a major issue, because the vast majority of the saints we commemorate and imitate did not live long lives. So why do we say this? Well, because we're mortal. And our lives will come to an end, whether we're ready for it or not. And when death comes, judgment follows. So when we wish that God will grant our fellow Christians many years, we are wishing that God will grant them more time to repent. Because it is not the length of years that signifies holiness, as we will soon discover, but how faithfully we lived as an Abdullah, a slave to God.
1: Today we will read chapter 5 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died.
0: We begin with the first mention of book, or more properly, the scroll that the Toledot of the Torah has been consigned to. This is the book of the generations of Adam, it says. This is in contrast to the mention of the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, where there is no scroll or book to be mentioned. In Hebrew, this word is Sefer. Tailing on what I closed out with in the previous episode, this inclusion of the word Sefer is making it clear to the listener that something terrible has happened between God and man. It is fitting that chapter four ended with mention of men beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, signifying distance between the parties. And here we have the mention of a book, meaning that this is a letter from God to us because we are far away. Remember the words of St. John Chrysostom, the scriptures are God's letters to his absent friends. To further give evidence to this point in the next chapter, We hear about Noah's Toledot, but there isn't a mention of a book because Noah represents the Sabbath, the stoppage or reset, where God's relationship with man has been restored and rest follows, but we will get to that later. In the meantime, we are presented with a quick recap of the biblical story so far. It's no secret that the most effective way to teach and to learn is by repetition. So the Bible will employ this method of teaching quite often. Consider this a review, so to speak. Verse 2 is of prime importance because we are reminded of the functional difference between Eve and the female Adam who was made by God to be equal to the male Adam. It literally says that he named them Adam, as in both the man and the woman. But as we remember from chapter 2, The man was dissatisfied with this arrangement and wanted a human to serve him, so he concocted the function of the woman to wife and then later mother, when that was originally the function of the Adama. Again, we have to remember the functionality of the Hebrew language and not attempt to ponder how this would play out historically, which is why it's important not to historicize the biblical text, because it simply doesn't work when we do that. This is literature. The language is specifically there to teach you, not to inform you. In other words, it is there to make you an ideal slave to God, not to make you smarter or more knowledgeable.
1: We are told in verses 4 and 5 about the birth of Seth. So we can see how the authors are providing a contrast between this lineage, which is a Toledot, and the lineage of Adam and Eve's other living son, Cain, which is not a Toledot, but is communicated more like a kingly dynasty, such as, here are the men from Cain, and here is what they did. In the Toledot of Adam, as we will see, we don't get any information about the character's lives, accomplishments, or influences, because they don't matter. A Toledot is about the preservation of God's Torah, his instruction. Scripturally speaking, God's desire is for people to turn to him and obey his teaching. This is the only reason that they are permitted to continue living. So in the lineage in which the Torah is preserved, what each person does or contributes or accomplishes is immaterial. It's unimportant. Whether we are directly told about their level of personal adherence to his commandments or we speculate about it, it doesn't matter. I hear all too often people commenting about our recent historiographical developments in the empirical reconstruction of the experience of ancient Israel and how that goes to prove uh, that things have been redacted from the Bible, such as early Israelite temples having icons or idols of other gods, even early Christian temples. Or even more tantalizing is that El, the chief deity and namesake of the Hebrew word for God, El has a wife. This, of course, is in reference to the discovery of idols of the goddess Asherah appearing next to idols of El in said temples. People purport that somehow this disproves the reliability of the Bible and that God's very people, through whom the scriptures, the Torah, were delivered, do not appear to have followed what it said, and that the text had to have been redacted to frame a specifically developed theological point of a later person or school. This is stupid. The story of the Old Testament is the story of every human doing something wrong. Every human is bad, including the kings, the prophets, and the wisest men. The people who are good are good because of their obedience to God. And as with Abel, those characters are barely in the story at all. We don't hear about them other than the fact that they were good in context of being obedient to God. The overwhelming presence of bad characters is always cadenced by the mention of a good character and how quickly that good character disappears is both humorous and a functional teaching. I'm spending time on this literary feature of the Bible because like everything else in these early chapters of the Torah in Genesis, it is foundational to our understanding. What the characters do, whether they are in a Toledot or a non-Toledot dynasty, is unimportant. It's not the Adam, the humans, who preserve anything. That is one major thing we should take away from the curse of Adam and Cain's dynasty. Humans are dust. Human life, possession, and lineage is Hevel, vanity, passing breath. The story is here to teach us this. Humans don't preserve anything. So they especially do not preserve the Torah and the Toledot. God does.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point to continuously bring up because we tend to place the value of something on its historical or even scientific coherence. Well, that may be true if we're working with history or science, but scripture is a mashal. As we've said time and time again, it's a story, a parable. You start with a teaching and then there's an example of how that teaching should play out through the form of a narrative. If you speak any Arabic, you should know this by heart because in Arabic, the word mathal is obviously related to mashal in that it refers to an example of something. It's used in speech in a similar way to how English speakers use the word like. This is exactly how Jesus teaches in the synoptic gospels and this should be very clear to us. He teaches the same way that the scriptures have always taught because Jesus functionally represents the words of Scripture. Does the parable of the Good Samaritan lose its value if historically there wasn't really an episode where the events of that parable literally happened? Of course not. So why do we put this pressure on the broader story of Scripture? If the teaching is true, the story has value. The historical factness of the story is irrelevant.
1: Right. We chase after the historical factness of the story so much because ultimately what we're doing, whether or not we see it, is we're trying to validate the things that we believe in a logical, scientific method. Because when we do that, the thing we believe has power. Because we don't believe that God has power on his own, we have to defend him. It's ridiculous. One last thing that we must notice here is the extremely long life of Adam. It's hard to miss, right? 930 years. Please keep track of these ages and try to see what's going on with the lifespans as we continue reading. Whenever we're introduced to a new name, uh, I'm going to pause and briefly explain what the name means, uh, since there are a few new names and some names that are actually uh, names we've already heard but have been altered. So in verse 6 through 8... It says when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So we know these names already. Seth means to put, to set, to appoint, and Enosh is uh, one of our new words for man. So we talked about in our last episode how this is signifying a new reset, uh, a new Adam, a new man. This is a very consistent theme throughout biblical literature. In verse 9 it says, When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. So Enosh fathers Kenan, and this is an interesting one. It comes from the same verb as Cain. Cain in Hebrew, which is what we pronounce as Cain in English. It's actually pronounced Cain in the native language. Uh, Cain means spear. Uh, But here, Kenan is in an altered grammatical form. So there are some grammatical things that I want to point out here, uh, which I think allude to some nuanced implications that the authors are trying to get across, but I, I won't spend too much time on it. The Hebrew language has what it's called a pronominal. Suffix, and this is a tool often used to denote uh, when something belongs to something else, and a pronominal suffix has been attached to the word cane here. So, here the suffix is on. You can hear it in keen on. The on at the end is the pronominal suffix, uh, which shows that the noun belongs to the idea of a feminine plural thing. Uh, So in English, our word would be them, so Cain belonging to them, and that them would refer to a feminine entity. But in English, we don't distinguish uh, between masculine and feminine, so it's a little harder to understand this. Um, So does this mean that Enosh births Canaan, the spear that belongs to a group of females? Well, no. Remember, the Toledo is all about the preservation of the Torah, the teaching, we haven't been introduced to the Torah quite yet as a word, but the word is in fact grammatically feminine. So I'm certainly going out on a limb here, but I would wager that the authors are alluding to Kenan as being the spear of the Torah, the spear that belongs to the Torah, as he is the son of Enosh, or the new man of the Toledot, the grandson of Adam, the first man. It's all connected. Like I said, I'm definitely going out on a limb, but we were trying to uncover the story. And we would rather exhaust every possibility from the evidence in the text than avoid pursuing things and leave room for things from outside the text to creep in. So if we see something, we should point it out.
0: Yeah, that's definitely an important point to make, especially if there's anybody listening to this that might think we read too far into something or something to that effect. And of course, while that criticism could be noted, Um, I, uh, I like to be reminded of something that I heard on the flagship podcast of the F school of the Bible's literature, where, uh, Dr. Richard Benton talked about this quite a bit that, you know, he would rather try to squeeze out any possible meaning out of a text rather than just assume that it's self-explanatory and then perhaps ignore something that's really important. So you know, maybe down the line, we might realize that uh, one of our uh, interpretations of how the Hebrew is working is totally wrong, but at least we investigated it to begin with.
1: Yeah. When we realize we're wrong, we'll just stop the podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're always wrong. I mean, that's that's the, the point of scripture, right? Amen. <laughs> but uh, no, and really what you were saying about Kenan belonging to the Torah is quite reasonable, actually, I think, especially when we consider these series of altered and in some cases repeated names. Not only have we seen this phenomenon with Enosh and Kenan, but we also see it with Enoch and Lamech. These are reformed characters, so to speak. It reminds me of how the wisdom literature of the Ketubim, the third section of scripture, reforms the image of the characters of primarily David and Solomon. I mean, compare the elusive characters behind the Psalms and the Proverbs with those two characters as they appear in the Prophets, and it's a complete 180 difference. That literature is a masterclass in repentance, which will be shown fully by the end of this chapter in Genesis. Genesis. So Kenan is not a spear that will lead to the kingly domination, like his doppelganger, so to speak, but he is the spear of the teaching, of the dabar, the word. He belongs to the Torah, because like we've said time and time again, this is the toledot of the Torah itself. That connection with the word as a spear Also bears in mind the words of St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit,
1: which is the word of God. It's almost like Paul read the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, right? Crazy.
1: So verse 12 says, When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. So Kenan fathers Mahalalel, which means praise of God. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and He died. Mahalalel fathers Jared, which is from the word yarad, which means to go down or to descend. When Jared had lived 862 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Jared fathers Enoch, which means dedicate. And yes, this is exactly the same name is the son and city of Of Cain, both named Enoch. We've discussed how this showed Cain's dedication to his lineage. Similarly, its appearance here in the Toledo is in reference to the dedication to, once again, the teaching, since that is what the Toledo is preserving. Additionally, the verb chanak that Enoch, or chanok actually, comes from is the verb chek, which describes the inside parts of the mouth. Considering that the divar, the word, and the Torah, the instruction, the commands of God are all spoken, and the Bible was originally exclusively proclaimed aloud from the scroll, gives this some interesting nuances of meaning. Lastly, the word chek often describes the specific phenomenon of tasting, and naturally, That brings to mind some connections with the eating of the scroll, and consequently, the Eucharistic bread and wine, as well as the sweetness of honey that the consuming of Scripture delivers in the mouth, as referenced in our opening reading from Revelation in our intro. I think these are all very intentional allusions being made by the authors to help us connect all the dots as we continue to hear the story
0: when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch, of course, is a vitally important character in scripture, especially as he relates to his kinetic counterpart. The original Enoch was a dedication to his father Cain's work in the building of the first city. This Enoch, of course, was named as such as uh, possession of his father, Cain's kanah, so to speak. But this Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, is God's dedication and God's possession. We see this in his behavior he is the only one who is said to have walked with God. He is living as Abel, as a Bedouin shepherd. He is walking in the aman, saying, Amen, that is, I trust you, God. And because of this, he completes the mission God has assigned to him. He lives a full 365 years, which corresponds to the 365 days in a year. In other words, he lives the least amount of time, but is the one who actually lives the fullest, as God's ebed, his slave. And because he is not enslaved to death, he is not taken by the jaws of the serpent, but he is taken by God. He is truly an Abdullah, a true slave of God. It's also fitting that he is, once again, in the seventh generation, signifying that he represents God's dedicated completion, he fulfills the will of God for all mankind. I would also like to mention that the word Enoch, that is the dedication once again, is precisely the same word that is used to describe the Jewish festival of the rededication of the temple, that is, as we all know, Hanukkah. Yes, Chanukah in. Enoch are the exact same word, but because of English silliness, they're pronounced a bit differently. Why is this important? Well, I think it's interesting when we consider the world that this section in Scripture may have been written in and passed down. Now, I don't think timelines are particularly important, but there is a growing opinion in scholarship that at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis were actually written as late as the Hellenistic period. For those who may not know, this is roughly between 300 and 100 BC, corresponding with the arrival of Alexander the Great and the Greek domination of the Levant. It was the Jewish revolt against Antiochus IV, commonly known as the Revolt of the Maccabees, which temporarily drove out the Greeks and brought restoration to the temple and Jewish autocracy. This is the event of which the celebration of Hanukkah commemorates. So given that this occurred during the aforementioned Hellenistic period, and these early sections of Genesis could have also been written during this time, the Maccabean revolt could have been fresh in the minds of the authors and the original recipients of this text. When they heard the dichotomy between Cain's Enoch and Seth's Enoch, it could have been hearkening them to the importance of dedicating ourselves to God and not a man-made institution. To drive this further, another contemporaneous writing during the Hellenistic period is, of course, the Book of Enoch itself, that is, First Enoch. And a common theme contained in First Enoch is the dismantling of the current temple, the one that the Maccabees fought so hard to maintain, and the creation of a new heavenly temple. It's like you don't have to rely on the Greeks to destroy the temple. I, the Lord, will destroy the temple and give you the garden instead. I invite all of our listeners to look up and read First Enoch chapter 90, and you get a clear picture of what's going on, and it just feels like it's a response to the political cult surrounding the Jerusalem temple during the Hasmonean dynasty. And if Genesis was also written in this purview, the inclusion of Enoch in both these genealogies seems to make a lot of sense. But, you know, this is all speculation. It it makes sense, though. But bottom line, our dedication is to God and God alone, not our temples, our kingdoms, or our leaders. Nothing and no one but the one God of the scriptures.
1: Enoch fathers Methuselah, which means a few different things, potentially. Some people suppose that it means man of the dart, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. The word shalach does mean dart. It also means a missile of war or a weapon in general. Okay, that gives us a pretty good idea. But interestingly, it can also mean a shoot of vegetation sprouting out of the ground which has obvious connections to the themes we've been talking about, like the life that came out of the Adama. So once again, we have to harp on this over and over again. This is a literature. We have scant evidence of uh, historiographical reconstruction that allows us to see these events as historically real, but we have 100% of the evidence we need to understand that this is a literature. The words, the way that the authors wrote, the grammar... Uh, like any well-written book, is going to put pictures in your mind. The symbolism is extremely valuable. So with this word, the dualistic meaning between the positive connotations of growth and the negative, destructive connotations connected to war are impressive. What a cool word. Perhaps this name is foreshadowing the similarly destructive flood that allows for the new growth which we will hear about soon in the story of Methuselah's grandson, Noah. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Methuselah fathers Lamech, which, yes, indeed, is the exact same name as the final father in Cain's dynasty. This is clearly another of those positivist parallels like the new Cain we have in the third name of this genealogy in Kenan, and also Enoch later on in the chapter. Through the first Lamech, Cain's Lamech, came the settled shepherds who lived in tents, not the wandering Bedouin shepherds, but keepers of livestock who had settled. And also through him came metropolitan culture, war, and lust, But through this new Lamech will come a deliverer, one who gathers or shepherds all of creation onto a vessel and delivers them to rest. But not just rest. God doesn't just want his people to chill. Through Lamech's son will come rest and repentance. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. It will come up again soon, so I want us to take note. In Hebrew, there are two words that often provide a sentiment of repentance, as we often think of it, though they are still two distinct words used differently. So please remember that many of these words are derived from and would have been part of the lingua franca, the common language of the original hearers, which was Aramaic. So when they hear noach being introduced as an idea, they have a socio-contextual understanding of the word, and it is this understanding of the word that the authors play on, not our understanding when we hear the word rest, but whatever they would have been thinking, and it is through the language of the Old Testament that we can get a closer and closer idea at what this would have been. Therefore, we have to pause and try to take in this understanding for ourselves as hearers of the text, especially with a concept so central to our lives as believers of the one true God, that being the concept of repentance. Okay, so the word nacham. This is the word that uh, is connected to Noah. They're playing on it. Uh, in verse 28, where Noah's father calls him uh, Noah, saying, this one will comfort us from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. That word comfort is the word nacham. So it's a play on words. The word Noah has a different root, but especially in the Hebrew, you can hear uh, that they sound really, really similar. In Genesis 6.6, 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That word regretted is Naham. In 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That word regret is nacham. And for those wondering why we just heard that the Lord regretted something, and then in a different part of the Bible it says that God cannot regret anything. That's exciting, isn't it? We found a contradiction.
0: Deal with it.
1: Deal with it. They're different books. 1 Samuel 1535, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, again, this isn't what we're talking about right now, but they're in the same book. A few verses later, when we just heard that God doesn't regret, we heard that God regrets. So at the very least, maybe the authors are saying, we don't know what we know. In Exodus thirteen seventeen, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So that phrase, change their minds, is the word nacham.
0: Yeah, it's like metanoia in, uh, in Greek.
1: In Job sixteen two, it says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And that word comforters is the word nacham. So comfort, regret, changing of mind, rest. uh, That's kind of the shades of meaning that this word carries. So let's keep that in mind. The next word that is often connected to repentance in Hebrew is shuv or shub, depending on how you pronounce your Hebrew. Uh, And this is often translated as a, a physical turning, like literally like to return, to turn around and go the opposite direction. So Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Leviticus 25.10, And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Numbers 5.6-8 says, Tell the Israelites that when a man or woman acts unfaithfully against the Lord by committing any sin against another, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution, add a fifth to its value, and give all this to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord." and must be given to the priest, along with the ram of atonement, by which the atonement is made for him. So restitution in that passage, that's our word, shuv. So we've heard of a physical returning, turning back and walking the, the, the correct direction, yeah, like, like literally that idea of a physical return. And also restitution. Uh, again, restitution is just another fancy, silly English word for return. You return. If you wrong somebody, you return to them what it is you've taken. And our last example for this word is in Hosea 6, 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So as we continue throughout the stories in Scripture, we will see how these two words interconnect uh, to play into the idea of repentance, because we don't want to theologize repentance. We don't want to figure out when exactly we are forgiven and how our sins might affect the, the cosmological Jesus who has existed and permeated through all time. Uh, because the moment we sin now, it is a drop in the water bucket of all the sins that were poured on top of Jesus at the moment of his whatever. It's silly. It's these two words. And we're being introduced to the one that is connected to the name Noah. And it's important for this story. So I want to set the stage now so that uh, it's harder for us to insert and eject uh, the things that we like and the things that we're comfortable with into the story so that we can hear the story for what it's saying.
0: Yeah. And so going back to the story, uh, I'd, I'd like to mention that Lamech is gifted with his son Noah after having lived for 182 years. That's important because that's exactly half of Enoch's perfect 365-year life, meaning that Lamech's salvation is not to be realized through himself, but through his son, Noah. Because a son is half of their father, Noah is set up to fulfill that full 365 years of a perfect human lifespan. This is a function Noah contains. However, there's a twist ending at the end of Noah's life, but That's a few chapters down the line. In any event, it seems relatively clear that even though Lamech is a king, as his name would suggest, he finds redemption through his aman to the salvific work of God and his gift of repentance, which is embedded in the name of his son Noah. But notice how Noah doesn't come about by the work of Lamech, as in, Noah does not seem to have been born out of natural sexual intercourse, but he appears to have been a new creation out of the Adamah, the cursed Adamah, no less. This harkens us back once again to the original Adam. And here we have that classic sabbatical reset signified by Lamech's lifespan of 777 years, three sets of seven, which could correspond to the biblical year of Jubilee mentioned in our sixth episode. Lamech correctly interprets the importance of God's gift of repentance here, as he claims no ownership over Noah but treats him as an inheritance from God, who will bring the world relief from the painful toil of yielding to a cursed Adama. And it's striking to me that we've already heard that because the Adama is cursed, it will only spring forth thorns and thistles when man tries to cultivate her. But for God, she brings forth the Naham, the comfort, because the only one who can sanctify something that is cursed is, of course, God himself. And we see how he does this time and time again throughout the biblical story. The Adama here is functioning just like the barren womb of Sarah, from which Isaac is born. And Isaac, like Noah before him, is born without the interference of the Father. It is all God's work. God is intervening to ensure the survival of his teaching. And I, I, I really like that image connecting the Adama with Sarah and the other barren women in Scripture. And it, it bears in mind uh, one of my favorite hymns in the Orthodox Church, which is the Akathist hymn to the Theotokos. And there's a section in there where it talks about her uh, being the... Uh, redemption of the tears of Eve. You know, she has, through God's work through her, she has brought forth the, the true nacham, the true comfort, through uh, cursed human existence.
1: After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shim, Ham, and Japheth. So he fathers three sons Shim, which means name, Ham, which means hot or to become hot and Japheth, which means to allure, to entice or to enlarge. Of course, we'll see uh, in coming episodes how these meanings play a part in the story, but I want to focus again on Noah. Notice that he fathers these three when he reaches the age of 500. So Blaze mentioned how uh, Noah was born when his father was half the age of who we've been introduced to as the ideal human Enoch who lived 365 years. So we've kind of, we're almost being primed to hear that Noah will follow a similar path and leave live that 365 years. But uh, clearly that train of thinking is broken pretty quick because Noah uh, fathers three sons at the age of 500. So, okay, we're being primed for, for something a little different, perhaps Uh, we modern hearers, have some sort of triggered recognition within our logical English brains. We hear 500 and we think, oh, that's half of a thousand, which to us signifies a really satisfying, perfect number. If we work for a week and make $500, we are undoubtedly eager to work one more week to get that beautifully rewarding $1,000. It's enticing. That extra week of work means nothing if it means we can get that $1,000 that we've been waiting for. I think all of this is very intentional by the authors. Counting by tens has uh, been a common human system of counting for, for thousands of years. So they're playing on this this uh, identifiable number. The authors are clearly using all of the ages in this chapter to play around a little bit with the hearer's expectations. We have several ages that are seemingly random, 782, 962, 840, 910. Meanwhile, we have some ages that are really, really precise, 365, 777, and such as in this case, 500. At the very least, we should acknowledge that the text is doing something here with these numbers. I like to have my opinions, though, so allow me to share some. I think that in this situation, with Noah's age at the time of fathering his three sons, the authors are doing a play on the idea of the finality or completion in the number one thousand and on the historically comprehensive importance of extremely long lifespans in general. There seems to be a pattern in ancient human storytelling and religion that good and or powerful beings live extremely long lives, longer than a century at the least. Often these powerful godlike beings are the patriarchs or the mythologized fathers of the people or religion itself. These long lifespans in these stories serve a couple of functions. Primarily, it functions as a numerological metaphor for the might and strength of the character in question, normally serving uh, as an additional note to add to the power that they display in their story. Well, here in Genesis, the authors are spitting in the face of this tradition. The age of a human doesn't matter. They live a long time, toiling, then they die. Their son lives a long time, toiling, and he dies. His son lives a long time, toiling, and he dies. The only good character described in this toledot as doing good, or doing anything for that matter, is Enoch, who lives the shortest length of time out of anyone. And get this, he doesn't die. God takes him to be with him because of his obedience, his worship of God. Everyone else is born, they grow old, and they die. That's all we hear of their lives. Upon first reading, any hearer would be impressed by these incredibly long lifespans and also potentially notice the gradual fall away from that ideal 1,000, with some characters shooting back up in age, almost getting there but never quite. This is serving a literary function. Everybody and their mother has written some kind of theory online about why these characters have such long uh, lifespans, ranging from, oh, it being a, a scribal error to... Uh,
0: Which that's probably the most egregious one. Just yeah, j- really. just Just assuming that the authors made... Well, like, well, not, not that the authors made a mistake, but that the, the numbers themselves are a mistake because it doesn't fit with how we historically view anthropological lifespans so. yeah it's
1: pretty elitist like yeah, the, whole, wh- the whole the whole the whole <laughs> mindset of ancient people are stupid like they're not yeah,
0: that's a whole that's a whole other tangent but <laughs> yeah, yeah continue
1: <laughs> yeah and i've also seen other things to say that it's some sort of mathematical thing that if you if you put in some sort of equation that you get the actual age of the, of the character and that doesn't work out either because the the ages are so varying in range whenever they have a child that some of these characters uh would have been having children at the age of five so it just doesn't work we can see that it's a literary device. All of these characters who can't quite reach that perfect age of 1,000, discluding Enoch, of course, who wasn't interested in that, it's all leading up to this character, Noah, who is prefaced by this great word of prophecy spoken by his father Lamech that his son will bring the people to rest, delivering them from the toil of their hands. So naturally, we expect Noah to live the longest, most accomplished life. He's the most powerful character in the story. How much more so when we are told that he fathers three sons at the age of 500, leading us to believe that the authors are foreshadowing this perfectly accomplished life, where he heroically will die at this punctual age of 1,000. Now, I hate to be the guy that spoils the end of the story, but he doesn't make it. He dies at the age of 950, not even the oldest person in this Toledo. He's just 50 cents short of a 1,000. Okay, so I'm not advocating for this really specific reading of the text. I don't have some magical spirit-inspired lens that no one else does. But we need to notice things like this. Again, we're trying to squeeze every possible meaning out of the evidence that the text gives us instead of evidence outside the text. So even if I am off the mark... What we can see is that the authors are co-opting the common literary minutiae of all the religious storytelling from their time and smushing it into the dirt just to pick it up and present it as the garbage that it is. Humans aren't special. They are selfish, greedy, unpleasant, and will all eventually return to dust. The only one capable of preserving good is God alone. Those humans who adhere to what is good, that is his instruction, they'll live shorter lives because the only reason that we are permitted time in this land is to turn to God. That is why we wish you many years, because we know that you, if you are anything like us, will not take advantage of your time. You will stray off the path. You will go after other gods. You will fail. We wish you many years because it's in hopes that God will grant you a few more breaths to say the right thing and walk the right way. That is to speak his word and allow it to push you in his direction. There you will find the kham. There you will find rest.
0: Alhamdulillah for all things. (laughs) Alhamdulillah. See you next week. i